Aha, believe it or not, we are on time. 4.01.37 here in Anchorage, Alaska. So that means no one's listening to us because they all expect us to be 15 minutes late, right? So, okay, it's going to work out great, our usual diabolical methodology. Uh, actually, the, the announcements today, I've, I've been throwing a few announcements in, but I don't have kids to dismiss, and today I'm not going to do that because most of the announcements are in the are in the material, so we'll just go like uh, we know what we're doing, which would be the first time ever. So here we are, August the 2nd. Wow, it's winter in Alaska already, isn't it? August the 2nd, lecture uh, discussion number 111 on the book of Joel Daniel Revelation Ecclesiastes. Okay, uh, get some pretend stuff here. A while back, maybe a couple of weeks ago, maybe more, I introduced a statement to the insight of C.S. Lewis, a man who was incredibly thoughtful. I know there's some that do not believe that's the case, but clearly he was, in my view, of course, which is what matters in this particular avenue. But he said this, we can ignore even pleasure, he said, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciousness, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Uh, again, a few weeks ago, I, I mentioned that. I don't know how far back because I can't remember past five minutes ago now. But obviously, uh, that's from his book, uh, The Problem of Pain, which I would heartily recommend everyone at least read through it. I also, as you know, um, Grief Observed, I believe, was his finest work by far. But uh, obviously, C.S. Lewis saw that there was a problem with pain, and he would, of course, see the problem as theological. And that causes the easy questions to come flying at us. What are these problems that he saw that we should see? In other words, the questions, if you prefer, what are the questions of pain that C.S. Lewis began to wrestle with? And uh, yes, one again, once again, identification of the questions becomes central. If you begin to start with the questions, you ultimately will find the direction you're to go. Let's just throw out a couple here. Why is there pain? Why do I have physical pain? Uh, it's obviously a warning system of some kind, but it's, uh, you know, it tells me do not put face anymore on burning oven stove top. Uh, so that's that. But uh, if you're bitten by an animal or a mosquito or a, uh, uh, some kind of stinging wasp, you will feel pain. So why? Why is there a pain system? Now, there are some people where the pain process is interrupted and they don't feel any. And, of course, the ancient leprosy had this impact on people. So, so their extremities began to become uh, destroyed but because they had no warning system. So why is there pain is most often the starting point when you get into this discussion of the problems of pain. Why then are, or what then would be a better way to put it, what are the associations between death and pain? Because there clearly is an association. There is a, a anatomy, if you will. There are steps from pain to death. 
Are they inseparable, death and pain? And if yes, why are they inseparable? Are they always together in some form at some point, even though the point may be very short? What is the difference or what are the differences between pain and death? Because there are differences, obviously. What are the theological differences? One of them, clearly, pain gives you time. The other one, time has expired. So there's a difference to consider. Why is that difference installed? What about feeling? The physical sense of touch. Isn't it all relative? Is touch relative to pain? Is it not? This is touch. This would be pain. So there's a relative element. Why didn't C.S. Lewis entitle his book, The Problem of Death? Because that would be the ultimate level of pain ends at death. But the ultimate level of pain would, I, I submit, be the death itself. He did say this about pain. He said, pain is unmasked, unmistakable evil. Every man knows something is wrong when he is in pain. He identified pain as being evil. Is he right? Oh, yeah, he is. Why is he right? So, with him identifying pain as unmasked, unmistakable evil, and that everybody knows that something is wrong, he is essentially saying that everyone knows that he is being affected by evil when he is in pain. So it would be acceptable, would it not, to substitute the word death for the word pain in that sentence, to say, for example, death is unmasked evil, unmasked, unmistakable evil. Every man knows something is wrong when he is in death, when he dies, when he sees death. And I would tell you now, there you are at Ecclesiastes 12. And I, of course, I modified CS a bit there, and so don't write me, those of you who have uh, access to his uh, books. Um, I, I do modify things as I want to do. I can't help myself. It's a long-standing personality defect. And I... I heartfeltly am sorry, not really big sorry. Not really heartfelt felt either. Anyway, what is wrong? What is the something that is wrong? What are the somethings that is wrong? That he says, I believe that he's absolutely correct and I'll defend his position. Every man knows something is wrong when he is in pain. So what is that something that is wrong? Why is it wrong? How many somethings are there? Is it just one something or there are many somethings? Why is it wrong? And that in my humble, uh, uh, most of all humble opinions. Not most, all. I'm going all on this one. And that's the linchpin. That's the one when you get, why is it wrong? When you begin to wrestle with that one and you, you come to a conclusion, that's the one that all the others, the remaining questions with respect to this subject, to respect to pain, uh, they subsist on that one. Therefore, uh, we should embark on our expedition today as with that question, why is it, why is it wrong? As that, that should be our onset or our baseline. It should be. Uh, but uh, we, uh, we won't go there because that's too easy. It's anti-Cliffsidean, if you will. And everyone knows that if it isn't convoluted, it isn't uh, chronosterodian. And those are words that I made up, but I expect that eventually they'll enter into the OED, the Oxford 
dictionary, or they will be uh, in the vernacular at some point. Webster, at least I should make Webster. And we all know that I do, do things convoluted, and we might as well embrace it. Because I do, I'm accused of doing it on purpose. Do you know why I'm accused of doing this on purpose? Because I'm doing it on purpose, and that's exactly right. Also, a while back, I asked about the origins of viruses uh, in not so many words. I wanted to know what you thought, what everyone who's listening to me thinks, is the origin of viruses. How did they come into being, if you will? Uh, Why are there even viruses? What's the purpose of them? Whose purpose is it? And that led to the question uh, as to immune response, uh, immunology, from a previous lecture, the theological considerations of the immune system. And that's what we're doing today, the theological aspects of immunity, of the immune defense. That's today's uh, beginning, if you will. What is the meaning of it scripturally? What does God say about it? And again, Mr. Lewis had an opinion. I think his opinion has validity, obviously, or I wouldn't have brought it, but I think it is up to us to begin to wrestle with it. Uh, immunology uh, is antibodies, it's T cells communicating with B cells, it's cytokines, it's the febrile response. The febrile response, of course, is what, whenever I talk about the febrile response, I am talking about fever, not the song. But uh, I'm kidding. This is the fever. The febrile response is is the fever aspect of your body as it's trying to protect you from an intruding uh, pathogen. And there are things in the body, uh, pyrogens. Now, obviously, pyrogens has something to do with heat. So. Uh, Medical terminology isn't that difficult. It's just a matter of figuring out what they're trying to say. Pyro, heat. So these are little particles, if you want to think of them that way, that are in your body. And they're activated when there is a febrile response. And, of course, this brings the hypothalamus in. The hypothalamus, I'll do a brilliant brain thing. The hypothalamus is about right there. Hypothalamus. Oops, I am feeding back, Terry. I'll I'll try to stay away from the monitor as much as I can. And the the hypothalamus is that which governs the febrile response. Uh, Obviously, we need to know what it's doing and how it's doing it. You have... Uh, leukocytes, and that's just to name a few of the pieces that conspire to produce this complex mechanism that is the immune process. Why is this important today? I have my, my belief, as you know. 
And what I mean by theological aspects is the intent of God, the, the intent of the intelligence of God, the agency uh, of, of who made the hypothalamus, who put all of the system together. Uh, and I, I may have asked that a few lectures back as well. I, again, can't remember, but let me put it this way. What is the original purpose of the immune response as it was originally designed? That's what I want to uh, try to get a, a scripturally sound opinion on. Why, if you want to think of it this way, why was the immune structures included at all? And I asked that. Did Adam have an immune system? If he did, why did he have it? Because it didn't seem like in a perfect environment that you need an immune system. So ultimately, this brings us to the city of Jerusalem, the new city. This brings us to the restoration of all things. Will we have an immune system? Did Adam have one? If he had, had one, what did he need it for? So that's the theological considerations. Some people will say that this, the immune system, is evidence of omniscience installing and placing within humanity and animals as well an ability to temporarily attenuate, mitigate the inevitable consequences of sin and death. If that is your view, the answer to that question uh, if you have the question, is that what, it, what the immune system is for? If you think that is the correct assessment, then no, that's not it. The answer is no. So why is the answer no? It's no because of the inevitability of it. Inevitability excludes freedom. If it's inevitable that we're going to sin and die, then there is no freedom. If God put this in Adam because he, because he knew and he would know because of omniscience, but if his knowledge of something is causation and it's not, somehow they, were, they are able to coexist freedom and omniscience. And that's something we've wrestled with for, for years here at Cliffside. But you, this can't be true that he installed something that he uh, knew would become useful in the event that sin and death ruled the world. So if you think that's the answer, that's not the answer. Again, inevitability excludes freedom. And when you exclude freedom, you will eliminate life. You will eliminate existence, as you know very well. I've said it thousands and thousands of times. In actuality, if you withdraw the intrinsic connection between accountability and suffering, because there is a connection between accountability and suffering. We are held accountable for our decisions. The Bible is crystal clear. There is a judgment. And you withdraw that connection between accountability and suffering. And it's theologically a common position that that's done. And I submit that you will also withdraw life itself. You will have removed what the definition of life from us. And, of course, again, that's Genesis 3. I'll get to that in a minute. And that may not make sense for now, yet or ever, because um, that's sometimes how it goes with me. But uh, it is the hope of me, the highly trained religious professional, that it will make sense soon. And soon is a relative term, as we all know. Am I going to have to put a box up here for as we all know? At least two. I think there's three. Anyway, um, let me uh, refocus here a bit. Humans and most animals are endothermic. 
uh, possessing the ability, that's the ability to maintain body temperature uh, between narrow limits. So we can maintain, I check my temperature how many times, dear? Lots of times. It's annoying. But I do it because of the current uh, conditions that surround me. And I would recommend all of us older people take precautions and be, be proactive and not reactive. Some people would like to go through life reactive. That is not, in my opinion, at my age, with my health conditions in this environment, a good idea. But that's just me. You can be you. You're young. Uh, you do not have to have my concerns. If I were young, I would not have my concerns either. Apparently, I'm not young. Has anyone noticed? I can't tell because I can't see. I can hear a little bit. That's about all I've got left. Okay. We have the, we're endothermic. We, we have this capability to maintain body temperature. Again, in a narrow parameter. And you should also want to know why do we have this capability? See how what I'm doing? We have an immune system and we have an endothermic system. Why? How good was... Let's just start thinking about the Garden of Eden. Did it snow in the Garden of Eden? But yet we have an endothermic structure. Again, hypothalamus. We'll have to investigate this hypothalamus. It's a very impressive little piece of equipment that somehow evolved from a rock or a pile of mud. Obviously, it's not true. It has a design. There is a designer. He put it in there, and it has incredible capability. One of those, again, maintaining body temperature. So, but why? Why this endothermic faculty? Uh, and when we begin to discuss the endothermic, endothermic faculty, that's going to lead the curious among us, maybe the not so curious as well, I hope, but at least the curious, to infectious diseases. Because what affects the endothermic set point, if you will? Why do we have these infectious agents? How did they originate? Same questions, aren't they? When did they originate? By what process? And how does our capacity to fend off these invading bacteriological and virulent pathogens compare with Adam's? Adam, did he even have this ability? I'm submitting to you that he did. Why did he have it? He didn't need it. Or it seems he didn't need it. But I say that he had it from creation. So how does ours, our current one, compare with Adam's? Original system. And say in another way, was Adam's immune strength equal to ours? That's unlikely, isn't it? We have evidence that it's unlikely because the Bible records the significant differences in the rate of decay, aging, the anti-delusion, uh, delusion. Oh my gosh, the anti-deluvian. The pre-flood world, anti means before flood, like anti up in a poker game, not anti, which is against A-N-T-E. The anti-deluvian ecology and it was clearly far, far distinct from our post-deluvian ecology. And the human beings had 
capabilities intellectually and their resistance to death by decay was extraordinary. We have accelerated aging compared to them mathematically and by every other pieces of evidence that are given to us. Thus, it would seem logical that Adam's immune response would have been far more efficient and formidable than ours, given his lifespan. You live 930 years outside of the garden. Now, some will say that's from birth. Some will say that's outside of the garden. He began to pay attention to his age post-exit from the garden, which would make the most sense, right? That's when the mortagenic... uh, element began to to go, to begin. And while you're thinking about these kinds of subjects, throw in parasites and murder hornets or insects. Why are there insects? Now, some people will say the bees pollinate, but so do the hummingbirds. Uh, Is there a pollination system that is dependent on insects pre-flood or pre-fall? When did, and you know the Greek mythology, don't you? Of uh, What's the lady's name that uh, opened the box? Terry, I think. No, that's not it. Why do I think so? <laughs> uh, woman Pandora, of course, opens a box. And out of, out of that box comes all of this infectious material. And, of course, in, insect. I'm sorry? Pandora, yes. Um, and all of that came out of that. That is the mythology of it. But it, that obviously isn't how it happened. But I want you to think par- uh, parasitical systems. Do you watch these shows on TV? Something is living inside of me and they pull out something from your mouth or your ear or your nasal cavity. And it all makes us run horror. Um, some lady had a brown recluse spider in her ear. Now, that would be unfortunate. Um, That's why we live in Alaska, because nothing else can live here in the winter. Uh, Anyway, think about parasites, insects, murder hornets, all of those things, all the poisonous, deadly things that are out there that are very small, and especially fungus. Why do I have deadly small things? Deadly big things are bad enough. We have bears and moose that will trample us. But why do we have all these deadly small things? And obviously this is is a a discussion on the curse of Genesis 3-7. He says the ground, let me put this on the board, the ground is cursed. That is really incredibly important for your sake. And I've discussed this before, but now we're... I'm hopefully going to do it at a level that is not very common. The ground is cursed for your sake to dust you shall return. And if you're supposing that this is a subject with simple answers to simple questions, buttercup not so, baby. This is tough, really tough stuff. Bad news are coming if you think it's going to be easy. It is not going to be easy as it might be apparent because of the hypothalamus itself. Just that one little thing, device, if you wish to think of it that way. For today, we're going to merely introduce the febrile mechanism, confine ourselves to describing it as best I can, as narrowly. It's a cursory impact, obviously. I'm probably not going to do a good job. I'll get letters from people who really know what they're talking about. Um, That's just how it goes. 
Hopefully I do it justice. Fever is an extremely complex indication of something that is wrong. In this case, it is an inflammatory and infectious condition in the body. And you begin this febrile response. Your body does it automatically. How does it do it automatically? Why don't you have to think about it? Oh, no, I have an infection. I have a pathogen that has come in and I am under assault. I will activate my febrile response. It's not how it works. It's the autonomic nervous system. It's autonomic. If you want to think of it as unconscious, you can, but it's better to think of it as automatic. And without attempting to delve into the entirety of the process, and it's exhaustive. Again, it's mathematically absurd that just that, the inflammatory febrile response, could evolve. It's impossible mathematically. It's nonsense. It's stupid. Now, that'll get me thrown off of Facebook, won't it? I hope so. Let's just notice a very few things here. Fevers occur when pyrogens... Fire thingies, if you want to think of it that way. Cytokines, leukocytes, and other cells are peripherally produced in the body, which means they're produced in the body, not in a specific place. They're produced periphery. And they start to begin, or they begin to move towards the hypothalamus. So they get produced by this febrile response, and they start moving towards the hypothalamus. And if you think that's coincidence, oh, please. There's no condensiality here. If you believe that there are coincidences in our bodies, in our anatomy, my goodness. Just again, mathematically, it isn't something that could possibly be uh, anything but intelligence. The designer did something here extraordinary. But setting that aside, why did he do it? Keep repeating that, don't I? The hypothalamus is responsible, again, for the regulation of metabolic activity. The hypothalamus is located in the brain. And so we're talking again about the brain. And we're talking about how the brain communicates with different organs in the body. The afferent and the efferent. efferent, uh, Signaling that goes the neurological, the ganglia. All of that stuff that I introduced a long time ago, we're finally getting back to it. So everybody cheer. Autonomic nervous system. Yay. This will be fun as I define fun. So the, the hypothalamus doesn't control just it. It controls lots of stuff, many processes. But body temperature today, that's, one of, that's just one of them. Anyway, when the pyrogens and the cytokines and the leukocytes reach the hypothalamus, they induce prostanoids. And prostanoids alter the, hypotha- the hypothalamic, sorry, the hypothalamic temperature control so and again we'll be able you'll be able I'll be able to diagram this at some point for you and you can watch it all occur with the magic of the dry erase board marker Um, if you want to think of the hypothalamic temperature control think of it as a thermostat there's a set point thermostat a hypothalamic a hypothalamic set point I keep leaving out the other a if you want to impress your friend, if you have friends, I don't. Some of you have imaginations. Anyway, what am I doing? The point is, what a point 
Really? Is there going to be a point? The body temperature rises, and that's good because the febrile response is good to a limit. As you know, you, if you have a fever, you want to have a fever. It is good for you because that is your immune response. If you throw yourself into an ice water bath and you have an infection, you will shut off the febrile response. If you shut it off, then you don't have an immune response. That's not good. That allows the pathogen to replicate. You don't want that. You want that immune system to attack. But if you notice that the immune system is attacking uh, way too much or not effectively, now that's when you begin to reduce the fever because of what? That's right, brain damage, of which I'm accused constantly. Because the pathogen has entered, inflammation is occurring. That's infection. But it really is about inflammation. Living cells are being commandeered by this pathogen. They have to do it. Why do they have to do it? How come they can't do it on their own? That's a theological consideration. Viruses are not living things. They have to attack living things in order to reproduce. When I start saying reproduce to you, your buzzers should be going ding, 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 ding. They have to do it because there's no reproduction if they don't. That is a theological foundational statement. That is how the Bible begins, is with that particular discussion. As I will point out in a second, if you aren't keeping up with me. Most of you are still awake, and for that, I think it's unanimous awaking. Let me check. Okay. Okay, one just woke up. So it was two out of three, and then somebody started laughing, hoping there was a joke in there somewhere. (laughs) Anyway, I'm going to have to have something for anyway, I have been told. A virus that can't reproduce. What's the word I'm not saying? It's a, it's a biblical word. I'm saying it by saying reproduce. A virus cannot reproduce. And so it has to take control of a reproduction mechanism. And it there finds it. It's stolen from the living cell, if you wish to think of it that way. And it's utilized to replicate the virus in this case. Now, there are bacteriological uh, infections as well, but today we're just talking about a virus because that is the subject du jour in, in our country. Ultimately, the immune response activated T cells communicate with B cells. The communication between a T cell and a B cell is really extraordinary. They talk to each other. The T cells tell the B cells what needs to be done. And there is activity that goes on. And it's impressive. Again, cannot possibly mathematically be something that occurred by chance. It is just not. And stop thinking that way. He screams to us in our pain. It is his megaphone. Uh, When all of this process begins, the body starts this resistance to the viral intrusion or infection. Again, the theological implications of this extraordinary occurrence. Why are we so equipped? How did it happen? 
It's in the design. Why is it in design? If you have a predisposition to believe that this was all preparatory. <coughs> what I mean by that, in other words, it's placed in us because God intended, his original intent was to create a man who would fall into sin and death. If that's your opinion, that's a popular opinion. It's, it's very, very powerful. It probably prevails. If you think that it is in his original will that man and animals will suffer pain and eventual physical death, that, and that was inevitable. And so he put in systems that would be mitigating, attenuating, that would have some kind of resistance to it. If that's your opinion, again, you'd be wrong. Because what are you doing? You're attacking the character of God. And you cannot. That's blasphemy. Attack. Well, you can, but it's blasphemy. He is omnibenevolent. But you have to ask, aside from that, why else are you wrong? And thus we get this uh, subsequent question. If it was not his original will, why is it in there? Why, did, why has he put this together like he has? Try to think like he thinks. Because everything he did has a theological element to it. He's revealing himself in his creation. And therefore we are without excuse. I actually answered that question when I asked the question, if it is not in his original will, why did he allow it? So I've answered the question in the question, why do I do that? How do I do it? Because I'm an HTRP. Ultimately, we're going to have to, when I say we, I mean me, reconcile the immune defense with omniscience. Just like we reconcile free will with omniscience. We'll do the same thing here. Okay, I have to cough, sorry. <coughs> that would be very unfortunate if we had people in the front row with no masks on. I would feel guilty and I wouldn't do it. Hi, hurrying along. By hurrying, I mean... Coronavirus 2019. It's been determined that coronavirus 2019 causes something called sepsis. Or if you will, septic shock. And there are levels of sepsis. Um, there's critical or acute... There's, it's very serious. And it has uh, been determined that this is something this coronavirus is doing. And sepsis is, an, is organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated immune response. In other words, the immune response does not operate efficiently. And so that causes an organ dysfunction. In other words, the immune system malfunctions. In this particular case with sepsis, it, the immune system over-responds, overwhelmingly responds, and it leads to toxicity, or if you wish, just organ failure, toxic organ failure. Um, and you remember I did uh, CD147, I think, last week. I hope I did it last week, maybe the week before that. Cluster differentiation 147. You have cells and there's a membrane. And on, top, on these cells, there are surface proteins, ACE, 
ACE 2 and CD 147 are on the surface, not necessarily together, but on in different cell systems they are uh, on the surface, as you know. And the coronavirus can get, it can attach to these receptors and they can transmembrane. In other words, they can get through the membrane of the cell. And that in, when they do that, uh, we have an infection. And we have inflammation in the body, in the cells. And inflammation is what gives you septus. So inflammation and septus are literally simultaneous, if you wish to think of it that way. Cause and effect. And if it becomes severe enough, the heart, the brain, the kidneys, and the liver are impacted by it. Now here's where we get into Leviticus 17.11. Leviticus 17.11, as you know, the life is in the blood. And if I have, if this is a blood cell or a blood stream, if you wish to think of it that way, and I get a, a COVID comes in here and it attaches to my CD147 or the ACE2 and it gets through this membrane, the cell membrane, and gets into the cell and it takes over the replication system, uh, then I will have inflammation. And the life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. Let me say that again. The life is in the blood. Leviticus 17.11, Leviticus 17.13-14. And there's this tremendous mystery around this verse, Leviticus 17.11. The life is in the blood. See how I'm doing. Pretty good. Obviously, the life is in the blood is a verse referring to Jesus Christ. This is where you find him. He te- the Old Testament testifies of him. John 5.39. Here's Leviticus 17.11 saying the life is in the blood. It is a singular. It is not plural. The life. There's only one life and it is in the blood. I do not have life. I have death. He has to change me. He has to Take out my dead blood and put the life blood that he has in me. He is the life that is in the blood, ultimately, when we are all restored. And again, that refers to Jesus Christ. John 11.25. John 6.53. He's the life and the blood. Ephesians 1.7. There is no life, there, there is no life apart from his blood. That is one of the great promises, great truths of Scripture. And that is the meaning of Leviticus 17.11. That is the highest meaning of that. There is no doubt. But there are more meanings to this. And they're usually hidden because that is how the Bible is written. And get used to that. Some have suggested that the soul, and I got this question a while back. So here we are finally answering it. How does he do it? How does he remember these questions that come from the vast Internet audience years ago and then finally bring them in? Right when he wants to. I know. HTRP. It's not easy. That's why I dress so nicely and get the huge wardrobe. What do we call my wardrobe uh, budget? Yeah, actually, I'm thinking that it's a wardrobe allowance. It's clearly I I have one pair of pants. Those are these are very expensive. Costco charged me a lot for these seven dollars. I can't buy clothes anymore. How come? Because I'm shrinking. 
Lori finds pictures of me at 255 pounds or whatever I was. It's incredible. Yeah. People ring the doorbell and they look at me and they go, you don't live here. Where's the man that used to live here? Well, most of him is gone. I, am, I was 178.7 pounds this morning. I wrestled 178. I'm almost ready. Joni from Cincinnati, she shares my dream. I'm almost ready. I'm doing my push-ups, doing my weight training. I'm ready to wrestle somebody for three seconds. See how it goes. Of course, it's not going to happen because of the insurance problem. I don't have enough of it. Some have suggested, and this is from a long time ago, the soul, in case you thought I lost my my place, the soul uh, is in, or you want to think of it this way, the breath of the spirit of life, the soul, resides in the blood. Lots of discussion. Is the soul in the entirety of the body, which would be the blood system, the circulatory system, the systemic circulatory system, the brain circulatory, the cardiac circulatory, cerebral spinal, all of those things. Is that where the soul is? That would make the people that would that would remove the blood from the body to be kind of foolish back in the 1700s with all of that. Uh, that's, this is why there are some sects that will not have a blood transfusion, right? Uh-oh, we have a visitor. Is that somebody we know? We need to watch. Doors are locked, I hope, right? Okay. Anyway, there are those who propose that, um, that that is the lesser meaning of Leviticus 17.11, that the soul, the breath of the spirit of life resides in the blood. And we should investigate that, and we will, just not today. But give me credit for bringing it up, especially since I, I asked this question uh, months and months and months ago. Okay, sepsis. Sepsis is not fully understood. No one gets it. Hardly anybody understands it. They, will, they know how to deal with it. Most microbiologists, medical researchers, believe that sepsis results from tiny little blood clots in, pulmonary, in the pulmonary system primarily, the capillaries, for example. They see this as a blood clot problem, and, and which then interferes with the oxygen and the carbon dioxide interchange uh, in the alveoli, the, sac, the alveoli sacs, and that, and that results in uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome. Okay, somebody is coming. Okay, we'll just keep going, and hopefully that uh, they don't uh, they don't try to kick us out again. Is it the police? Okay, good. So far, we can, we might be able to. Have, we outnumber her, so unless she's armed. But then again, so are we. <laughs> you might remember the intense cytokine release or the cytokine avalanche. That is a blood clotting that occurs from the cytokine cytokine. Barrage, if you wish to think, storm, they will say, hypocytokinemia. And perhaps you might remember any of that. I hope you remember some of it. When the oxygen supply structure is blocked, organs begin to rapidly fail. Tissue is severely damaged. Sepsis, septic shock, is the most common cause of death, I see you, in the intensive care facilities in the world. 
not just the United States, millions and millions of people die of septic shock, sepsis every year. And, and yet, to repeat, it remains mysterious. The immune system essentially becomes the enemy of the body and, and uh, instead of attacking the intruding pathogens, the immune mechanism overreacts. Uh, it ignores the viral infection. In this case, I'm using viral infection. It, it ignores it and begins to initiate drastic measures um, that ultimately, those measures ultimately destroy the major organs. That is the septic or sepsis condition. And, and primarily, the destruction is in the heart and the lungs, and that is why I know about it, because I have this particular condition. Sepsis is lethal. And it's very difficult to fully recover from it. If you look at the statistics, if you get sepsis, you will have, you might recover and you might survive, but you will be horribly weakened. And it will take years if you make it. And most people do not make it. They get out and they survive for a few years and then they, they are overcome. The medical community standard treatments are anti-inflammatories, corticosteroids. Medical, I'm sorry, mechanical intubation, dialysis. They're trying to support the lung function and the kidney function because we have kidney and lung failure with sepsis. And does that sound familiar? That's COVID-19, isn't it? That's what makes this such an insidious condition. It is causing sepsis. Septic shock. I've studied the autopsies. Who studies autopsies? I know I'm weird. I really appreciate you not saying it out loud as much as you should. But I've watched the autopsies. I've seen the clotting. I know as much as I'm capable of knowing that we're looking at a septus condition. Compare septus, sepsis, I almost call it Pepsi. Compare sepsis, the aftermath of it, with COVID-19. COVID-19 aftermath is showing the exact same characteristics. People get through it, but their lungs and their heart, their kidneys, their the internal organs, bloodstream, severely damaged. We are living in a time where mankind, because of this, is rushing to and fro, Daniel 12.4. The world is collectively joined, trying to discover, trying to unlock the immune system. That's important to know. The T-cell, B-cell relationship, communication, they're trying to unlock all of this stuff. Never before in human history has the biological sciences, medical fields had this level of collaboration. I've said that before. Science will save us. That's the battle cry. That's the mantra. Does that sound familiar? It should, because at the end of the age of the Gentiles, what will the world shout? Peace and safety, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 11. How much time do I have? I should read 1 Thessalonians 5. Okay, I can do this. Because, again... Why do I have to remind you? You would think that you would know it. Well, that's because I'm insecure. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, and if we are in the times and the seasons, and I think we are, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourself know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night, for when they say, peace and safety, peace and safety, science will save us, then sudden destruction comes upon them, and they shall not escape. 
But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. And that thief is a, is a very complicated thing. It's a, about a man that hits another man that's supposed to be a watchman in the lake with a stick because he's asleep. So thief of the night is a procedure, if you will, in a military system. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep, for others do. But let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love. And as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other, edify one another, just as you are also doing. Okay, Man's knowledge is going to increase. Expect the mystery of the immune system to be revealed. And when that will give them this feeling of peace, feeling of safety. I think they're going to solve the immune system because that, again, is Luke 17. I've said it for weeks now. It's Daniel 12, 4, Revelation 13, 3 through 4, and 13, 18. Those are Antichrist references. How does the immune system fit with the Antichrist? You ask. Okay, enough of the warm, festive, fuzzy, seeker-sensitive portion of the lecture. Let's try to take something more serious now. Really fast. Um, what shall we choose? By we, I mean me. I have all these things, ashes of the red heifer, I have fig leaves, I have Moses in Christ, I have Moses in Jonah, I have Moses in Lazarus, I have the resurrection of the body in existence, I have Genesis 6, demonic, angelic, reproduction. That's what I have in Genesis 6. Oh, look what we've been. Is there a similarity, let's just go there for really fast, betwixt, that's a really great, great word, between demonic reproduction and virus reproduction? Genesis 6 describes something of profound evil, incredible evil. I suspect uh, that it was evil we cannot imagine considering the, the, what was the response of God was. Consider also the intellect involved on the demonic side here. They're involved in this wickedness. By similarity I, between that and the virus, I mean virus cannot, again, they can't what? What's the biblical word that I've avoided saying all the way to here? They can't multiply. Viruses cannot be fruitful and multiply. Therefore, they've got to seize, they've got to manipulate an existing duplication structure. What is Genesis 6 inferring? Obviously, I'm saying that the sons of God of Genesis 6, Genesis 6 1, they seized the replication system, a multiplying system, didn't they? Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, the sons of God saw the daughters took wives for themselves. That is describing. And what came out of that? Something came out of it. The Nephilim came. At this point, God established 120 years of warning and ended it because he considered it great wickedness. Anyway, I've long speculated on the origins of viruses, an entity that binds to a protein, an enzyme, a receptor that is on the surface of a living cell. It's enabled to transverse the cell membrane, transmembrane. Uh, it has a transmembrane capability. It ultimately abducts the living cell's reproduction capability, the multiplication. It can now multiply at incredible speed and in tremendous amounts. So I'm asking you, what do you think of that? I'll leave my speculations as to where that might lead to others to evaluate. I gave way too many clues already. 
So now I have the resurrection of Moses in the body. Revelation 11, Matthew 17. What do you mean, Revelation 11, Matthew 17? I think that's Moses. The contention of the body of Moses, Jude 9. The death of Moses, Jude, uh, Deuteronomy 34, 4 through 8. I wish I could read it, but we don't have time. Obviously, we're going to need to establish a timeline. When did Moses die? When did Moses' body get fought over? When did Moses' body get buried? How do they fit together? What's the order? When did Satan launch his offensive to interfere with the hiding of the body of Moses? How does this incident compare to Elijah's ascension? Why didn't Satan fight over Elijah as he ascended? Or Enoch when he was taken? He didn't. Why didn't he go after Elijah's body that was in the cave? Did he go after Christ's body? Moses, Deuteronomy 18.15, gives a great gift to the church at Israel. He tells us that the prophet, the prophet, will come and can be identified by those things that are recorded of Moses. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like unto me. Deuteronomy 18.15. Deuteronomy 18.15 through 22 is incredible. It explains why Christ had Moses do the things that were revealed in Scripture. Because that is Christ speaking to Moses. He is the I am that I am of Exodus 3.14. He's the angel of the Passover. He's in the pillar of cloud. It's his feet that Moses sees. He's a physical manifestation of the Elohim. And this is why he had Moses do these things. Because Moses was going to do things that testify of Christ more than anybody else in the Old Testament. It's not even close. Though there are others. It's very much like the events of the Gospel of John. John put seven things together. Actually, 153 fish. But he put seven things together. And he said, look at these things. And you will find Christ, and you will know who he really is. Well, Moses is the personification of that. Here's some incredible theological wisdom. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 22, or Deuteronomy 18, if you watch, is followed by Deuteronomy 19. Wow. That's profound. Again, HDRP. Deuteronomy 19 is the manslayer, the avenger of of blood, the cities of refuge. It is not a change of subject from the prophet like unto Moses. It's a continuation. And that's something we'll have to deal with next week. Why does the resurrection of the dead bodies prove the truth of existence? Jesus Christ insists, he promises that he will resurrect the dead. He definitively states so, John 11:25. He demands that we believe him. It's a direct order that you believe him. Do you believe this? Yes or no? I am going to be the resurrector, the one that resurrects. I will resurrect. Why? And since Deuteronomy 18:15 through 22 includes Genesis 3:15, and it does. If you read Deuteronomy 18:15 through 22, you will find Genesis 3:15. What is Genesis 15? 3:15. It is the seed of the woman will fatally wound the head of the seed of the serpent. That's Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 22. That's Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is fundamentally centered around the lie of Satan as to the truth of existence. So therefore we know the contention of the body of Moses must be likewise concerning existence. Genesis 1, 2 begins with the lie of Satan, which was Ezekiel 28, 16. Genesis 3 reveals the lie of Satan. 
Moses said, everything that happens to me, everything I've written down in Scripture, guided by the Holy Spirit, will be fulfilled, will testify, will explain, will reveal the mystery of godliness. 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. That is the person of Jesus Christ, the prophet like unto me. And one could easily prevail. Let me back up a second. Let me add in Jude 9. And Deuteronomy 34, 5 through 7. Because that would be certain, wouldn't it? That's Moses' death. If something is going to apply to Christ, it would be Moses' death, would it not? I know I've been in, I've been in the arguments. Uh, I, I, I think I succeed. I have not been ever convinced otherwise. The death of Moses and the death of God, the death of Jesus, the death of Jesus God, they would be the most important of all the typologies of Moses. They would be the most similar. And therefore, the, the, I would have the body and the burial of Moses, and I'd have the body and the burial of Christ. Why didn't Satan go after the body of Christ? He went after the body of Moses. Did he go after the body of Christ? It's just not recorded? I think it would be recorded. So how is the fact that he didn't go after Christ's body, and he did go after Moses' body, the same? They must be somehow the same. They have to compare, like unto me. Let me ask the most obvious of all the most obvious questions. Christ's body did not go into corruption. Why not? Because it could not go into corruption. It's impossible for Christ's body to go into corruption. Psalm 16, 8 through 11. Acts 2, 25 through 28. Jesus Christ is the Holy One. His body does not go into corruption. It's impossible. Christ's body was lying in his tomb for the sign of Jonah. Three days, three nights. Matthew 12, 39 through 40. Now, the questions. Deuteronomy 34, 6. No one knows where the grave of Moses is. It says so. Why? Why is that the case? How long was Moses in the grave? Before Michael came and got his body. There's your timeline. Moses dies. Goes into a grave. How long? How long was he in there? He's the prophet. He's the, he's the typology, isn't he? The prophet unto me. Can we make an assessment here? Can we make a conclusion? Finally for today, the life is in the blood. Leviticus 17:11. Genesis 2:7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and then I added the then, and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. There's a order to it: body from the ground. Breath of life. And there's your answer to why the resurrection of the body proves existence. That order. Genesis 2-7. I've answered that question a couple of times. But I really answered it today. God cursed the ground. The ground. Where did I write that? Right here. He cursed the ground. He did not curse what? The spirit of the breath of life, or the breath of the spirit of life. He did not curse the personhood of Adam and the woman, ultimately Eve. Our personhood is not the body. We are the soul of the spirit. We are the life that is in the body. We are a soul that has a body, not a body that has a soul. Can't say that enough. That proves existence. That's why he resurrects the body. 
And that's all, folks.